Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 120 for November 29th, 2007. Your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your support. It's time for Security Now, everybody's favorite security podcast with Steve Gibson, the king of security. I don't know. You wouldn't you wouldn't style yourself the king of security. I no, know. I wouldn't. I no. just, you know, I've been thinking about it for a while. Thinking about being the king? No, thinking about security and <laughs> yes, you know, you messing around with it yeah. and and uh, wrestling with it and all that kind of good stuff. So, so this week uh, we talk, uh, we do our question and answer session. So we'll be talking about a lot of different security topics in just a yep. little bit. Bunch um, of good questions from people. We are pre-recording because of uh, last week's uh, holiday, Thanksgiving. So I don't, and I'm in Vancouver this week, so we don't have any errata from the previous episode. Not to say that it was perfect, but we just haven't had time to receive. <laughs> Right. We're recording this before anybody else has heard what last week's right, was. Right. So. And that'll be interesting. I'm sure we'll hear from PayPal if nobody else. Well, I at least hope we'll hear from PayPal. That would be great. I'd love to hear some defense of them. It, it turns out I when I exchanged email with Elaine, our illustrious transcriptionist, turns out she was one of the people also who she described herself as as being um, bated breath waiting to hear the complete analysis of that PayPal double click relationship. And, you know, her, her comment was, well, you know, I could give up on PayPal and delete everything, but my, you know, whatever they have, they already have, and I'm already in the galactic database. So, right. you know, what the hell? So <laughs> what the hell you're kind of stuck. Hell? What can you do? Right. Yeah. Right. We're all um, stuck. I did, I did get an, an interesting and fun sort of um, spin right story that, made me think of what we were talking about last year, last week because we were talking about raid and how you know for stuff that absolutely positively can't be lost right what you want is you want redundancy thanks to raid um you know and of course backing up is absolutely what you want to do when you when you don't have the option of raid and even for when you do have raid because for example you know malware can still infect a raid based system and then you've got much more reliable malware even though that's not what you want, right, uh, right. thanks to RAID. so More so, reliable malware. I never thought of that as a side <laughs> effect, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> so, so it still makes sense to, to take checkpoints. But I got a, a really fun uh, um, testimonial from a guy named Brian Kinder, who it, it hit me because he is very computer savvy, and he recognized that this was sort of like the reverse of the, the RAID uh, success. He says, "Just he, well, actually, he said he starts off saying just another success story for Spinrite. Just one just more. more, just another one." He says, "My boss has in his home a small work group network, and he was using an old Win 2K box as data storage. He called me in a panic that he could not get to any of his eleven thousand photos." Uh. 
that he had taken over the course of six years uh. from all of his many travels. I went over to his home and discovered that, of course, he has no backups. Now, why would you have 11,000 photos and no backup? Well, you know, I, I think this is one of the, the traps that people get into is that, well, it worked yesterday right. and it, it worked today. Ugh. So why wouldn't it work tomorrow? Yeah. But, you know, so anyway, so he says the previous, quote, technician, unquote, had set up his 2000 box with disk spanning and had a 160 gig, a 30 gig and an 80 gig disk set up in a span to form one single volume that was shared to the rest of his network. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that makes it four times as likely to to fail, right? (laughs) Well, three times, because he's got three drives. Three drives. So so, so it's multiplied by each drive, right? Because if any one fails, the whole span fails. Exactly. I mean, like the reverse of RAID. Right. and, And... of course, it is only as strong as the weakest link, so you're multiplying the failure probabilities. So, so he says, um, well, you know as well as I, and clearly Leo, that any – he didn't say that, but I'm putting that in here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that, including me. <laughs> that, that any drive in that group fails, the whole volume fails. So I run my trusty spinrite and see what happens. It took about a day and a half. But all three drives finished the process. The 30 gigabyte drive in particular had many, many errors, but with your data recovery procedures, it was able to make it through. So now we boot up the unit with the three recovered drives, and of course, the span volume comes up fine, and now he can get to the many thousands of photos he had stored. And uh, and of course, we have now set up a more sensible drive redundancy yeah. and a backup procedure for him to follow. So again, thanks for a great program. I've been using it since version two, and it has never failed to get the results I need. Signed, Brian Kindler. Wow. Kin- Kinder. Sorry, Brian. Brian Kinder. So I hope that guy, I that the was, photographer, fell on his knees and thanked you. Cause, oh, well, and again, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because we've seen hard drive storage just dropping in cost and we, I, we we've had some people write and say hey you know i can get a drive for less than spin so why would i use spin to recover a drive when i can just replace it for less and it's like well okay two things first of all you can only buy one drive for less than spin yet you get to use spin on all the drives you have for as long as you have spin and and secondly of course what we're seeing is as a consequence of storage getting so cheap and digital media coming on so strong with photos and and music and and you know there are people who have you know huge servers with and they've ripped all their DVDs cuz they want to store them on hard drive for instant access or for access on various machines around the house so you know we're obviously moving into a digital media world where the contents of the drive is what's valuable now right, right. more than the, the the container itself. And if you know what, if everybody backed up, they wouldn't need spin right. True. If they backed up like, you know, constantly, you're right. If they were religious about backups, you could just say, hey, that drive died. Oh well. Yeah. Although spin right, of course, does also keep drives alive longer. So, you know, it it can help the drive to fix itself in order to, you know, I mean, there are people who after, after they have a problem, continue using the drives that Spinrite repaired right. for them. As, as, you know, well, I'm doing that right now. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, and I feel fairly confident that whatever was the bad sector has been moved off. Although I should be pretty religious about backing up, not merely backing up, but spin writing these drives just to make sure. Yeah, it's a good thing. And, you know, I never asked, I answered your, I did not answer your question last week when you said about how often. And of course, Oh, there's the lane sending something. She just responded to uh, my sending the the Q&A She doesn't stuff. listen live, does she? <laughs> no, but uh, we have never mentioned the fact that we're, or are we doing it this time? Uh, we did last time, and uh, yep. we will uh, probably, the, uh, what we do is I stream, as I do my production day, my recording day, because we do, most of the shows, well, obviously all the podcasts are recorded ahead of time, and I think people would like to listen live. So what I do is I keep a uh, stream going at ustream.tv of uh, the recording. And then I have a chat room going at irc.dslextreme.com in the Pound Town Square chat room. So people, it is eventually going to be, my idea is eventually to be a little more live and interactive, but at least this is kind of a poor man's way to listen as we do it live. Well, uh, not today. I haven't put it on today because I'm having trouble with the Verizon. It's just not reliable enough. I have uh, to get a second uh, channel in here, probably get a T1 or a, you know, see how you just get a cable modem. And <laughs> have the yeah. cable modem in the DSL, and that's kind of a nice set of redundancies. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, she could be watching live, but she's not today. Nope. Not in this case. Not in this case. Um, so, a- anyway, uh, I never answered your question last week about how often you should run SpinWrite. And, of course, the, the answer is, well, run it before your drive fails. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. But But, you know, my sense is that most people have years of life on their drive before they start having right. any problems. Right. Uh, there are infant mortality problems, of course, that we've talked about in the past as one of the ways that drives can fail. But, you know, uh, maybe three times a year, I would think that's often enough to allow Spinrite to help the drive realize that it's got problems and and move any endangered data out of the way. It also... You know, it it also works the drive. I mean, you know, when people talk about it running for a day, that that's you know serious data transfer that is occurring. That that also allows the smart system to in the drive to discover if there are any problems. So I mean, it just it sort of just gives it a real good shaking to make sure that you know not too many bits fall out. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Shake your drive regularly to make sure no <laughs> bits are falling. Yeah, find the loose bits. Find the loose bits. Before we get to our questions, and we have, let me see, just we have, looks like we have uh, 12 excellent questions, including the Clever Observation of the Week Award. Exactly. That'll be fun. Before we get to to, uh, that, though, I do want to thank our friends at Nerds on Site, because they are what makes this podcast possible. They provide uh, advertising support for the podcast. Nerds on Site, well, it all started because they were such fans of yours, Steve. They uh, invited Steve Gibson to a little... Uh, coffee uh, tete-a-tete uh, in Toronto when he was up uh, visiting uh, Call for Help. And uh, now I've I've met many of them in Vancouver. In fact, they gave me a little convoy from the airport in their red nerd mobiles. They have these great nerds on site Volkswagens that they all drive. What, you know, and I get a question a lot and I don't have a really great answer for it. I don't know if anybody does. What is nerds on site? Essentially, the idea is nerds on site helps you get your business done. If you are in IT, whether that's on-site uh, IT departments or uh, desktop support or Soho residential IT services, <clears throat> whether you're PC or Mac, Oracle or Cisco, you could be a fix-it guy, a security expert, even sales and trainers are members of Nerds on-site, and, and, uh, and of course, everything in between. Here's the deal. You are in business. You stay in business. You're still an independent contractor, but you're not. you're in business for yourself, but not by yourself. 
And and so here's where Nerds on Site helps. They help you get clients. They help you answer your clients' problems because if you can't figure it out or you need an expert in a certain area that's not your area of expertise, you can call on other nerds to support you. You can keep your skills sharpened with their University of Nerdology. They have 250 different competencies. And you get a lot of things free. For instance, we talk about Astaro all the time. They're an authorized Astaro solution provider. So as a member, you are too. And they have free Astaro certified administrator and Astaro certified engineer training. So you get those skills too. And that's not just for Astaro. It's for all sorts of UTMs. It's for systems architecture design, software development. It's really a really neat way of kind of honing your skills, building your business, and having the support of a great company behind you. That's, I know, not a perfect example. Best thing to do is go to www.iwantobeanerd.com and sign up for a free nerds-only meeting in your area today. I think in most cases, uh, they do it online, so it's very easy. It's a, it's a simple thing for you to do. You do it that you know, fit your schedule, and you'll find out more about what Nerds on Site is all about. Really a great group all over the world now, by the way. Don't just think U.S. only. No, Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, Singapore. They're growing because it works. www.iwanttobeanerd.com. We thank Nerds on Site for their support of security now. All right. Are you ready for some questions? Absolutely. Absolutely. I got a, a dozen good ones, starting with Eric in Palo Alto. He wants to give his credit union some credit. Dear Stephen Leo, he writes, Yesterday I got an email from my credit union, Patelco, telling me that they are now going to require multi-factor authentication for customers who want to use online banking. Being the geek I am, I got all excited. Maybe they listen to security now as well. So I quickly went to their website, started reading about it, then signed up immediately for the beta test. The thing that surprised me was... Their method of multi-factor authentication was a bit different than those I recall hearing you talk about. Their system works by having you authorize specific internet service providers that you can log on to your, their system from. So uh, he's with SBC. <clears throat> so when he logs on for the first time, it says, ah, you're on SBC. I'm going to add that to your safe providers list. No, you are not able to manually add ISPs. You actually have to log in to, from them. So you have to be on an SBC connection, and then they'll ask and, and, and allow you to add that to your approved providers list. This morning, when I got to work, logged onto the bank account again. After I entered my account number and password, I was taken to a screen that said, you need to enter a new password. We're going to send it to you because the domain you're connecting from is not on the list. So he said, I could have the password emailed to me or have a text message sent to my cell phone. I like that. That's very convenient. Uh, since email addresses and cell phones are on file with him, so he chose email. Within a few seconds, he got a four-character alphanumeric password that allowed him to access the account. The password expires after two hours, kind of like a PPP. Well, not exactly, because you just use it and then it's done. Right. Now that I've logged in from here, my works domain, oh, this is great, appears on the list of approved providers, and I don't have to go through that rigmarole again. However, should I want to always be prompted for an additional password? He, oh, he's asking, should I always ask this? I have the option to set it up that way. I was interested in hearing your comments on how good the system is and what flaws, if any, you see in it. Well, that's a simple way to do multi-factor authentication. Well, it, yeah. It's kind I, of weak it, authentication. Yeah, I wouldn't quite call it multi-factor. Um, I guess there are, um, and I should be more up to speed on government regulations, but there are, there are 
new regulations I know that are coming on stream that are requiring multi-factor authentication, unquote. That is something more than just username and password. So so I guess this would qualify where obviously the another factor is the in, in this case the domain from which you're connecting. So it would so work better if you were on a small internet service provider. Uh, exactly. If you're on I mean, AOL, AOL. That means anybody on AOL can attempt to hack you. Exactly. What what they're what they're clearly doing is they're doing something that we've talked about in the past, a so-called reverse DNS lookup. Normal DNS, as we also know, takes you from a a human readable style um, URL like www.grc.com, and that that translates it into grc.com's IP address, which is you know the 32-bit destination where our servers live which is shown as the four groups of numbers i think grc.com is 4.79.142.203 for the www.grc.com and so that's what dns does um reverse dns like the name sounds does the reverse that is you give it an ip address and it it can tell you what the what the machine name that is the, the 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 domain name is that's associated with it. So, for example, if you do a reverse DNS lookup on that on GRC's IP address, you'll get www.grc.com. Now, um, we all know that DNS is a good and generally robust system, but not ever designed to be ultra secure. There are various types of DNS spoofs and poisoning uh-huh. attacks and, and, and so forth that, that can be done. Um, also, clearly this was meant that this was designed to, for example, allow in your case, Leo, an AOL user, they're going to, if they're like an, an older uh, style dial up user, they're going to get a different IP address every time they dial in to a large modem pool and of course, as we know, even even um, cable providers that are using DHCP to distribute their relatively limited IP pool around in their customers, you know, there is reuse of that. So that, if, for example, if you had your cable modem unplugged for a couple of days and then reconnected it, you'd very likely get a different IP address than you had before. Um, if you keep the power on and you've got a NAT router, which is sort of anchoring that IP, they generally are more static. Although Mark Thompson in Phoenix was telling me that he's now seeing, for whatever reason, his his Cox uh, um, networking provider is changing his IP like daily now. So, you know, whereas others tend to stay much more static. But anyway, the point is that clearly they designed this to to say, okay, we're not – going to concern ourselves with the user's IP, which is changing. We're going to concern ourselves with the with the ISP's domain name. Now, when you do a reverse lookup on a, for example, on a Cox cable modem IP, you will see the typically it's the it's the IP address first. Then sometimes they'll have something that's sort of like regional, like um, I remember sd.sd dot cox dot net sd dot sd happened to be san diego in the case of of someone who long ago was attacking grc or oc dot oc for orange county dot cox dot net so so the 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 bank or other institution that's using this 
this style would they would ignore those those earlier chunks of the DNS result, which might be I and probably are based on the specific IP the user has at this time, but they they'd go back further down in the domain name to say, okay, he's at Cox.net, he's at AOL.com, he's at you know. Um, I guess on, on big providers, they could have they could know what the range of uh, IP addresses that the provider, what class you know C domain the domains the provider owns, right? They could just add well, yeah, all of them. And, and, and in fact, that's the problem: is it's not one to one authentication. Oh, oh, I see. It, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it it's essentially not your IP address because it can't be because it changes. And as, exactly, and as you said, any any one who is trying to spoof. For example, the 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 quote the the other factor of an AOL user. Well, if they were on AOL, then when their spoofed their 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 spoofing attack comes in, and their reverse i their their reverse DNS is made, they're going to be on AOL, which might match one of the quote safe providers on that user's safe providers list. So. So the problem with this, and the reason I, I, I was skeptical about calling it really multi-factor authentication is, well, yes, it's another factor, but it's not a one-to-one factor. You know, for example, the whole – one of the cool things about perfect paper passwords that we've talked about is, you know, you're the only one with this printed out little password token list. Nobody else has one. If other people had them, we'd be much less enthusiastic about it. Right. Right, because there'd be the there'd be the opportunity for a a collision there. So the fact that every one of them is unique is where it gets its strength. Similarly, you know, if many people use the same password, even though their logon was the same, if their password like where there's a high incidence of password collision, well, that would weaken the system substantially. So, so I mean, yes, this is better than not having it, but it's. It's really not as secure as as we would hope it would be. On the flip side, it offers more security than not having it at all. You know, some random attacker in another country um, would have a difficult time spoofing their IP into um, uh, into a, a a specific safe provider. But even that's not impossible because the way reverse DNS works. Is you ask essentially reverse DNS um, goes through a, a a process of narrowing down the um, the location of the of the ISP that the user is using until they come essentially to the ISP's DNS servers. Well, it would be entirely possible for for someone located anywhere else to pretend to be SBC or AOL. That is, it's not AOL's servers that uniquely provide that reverse mapping. It's the server associated with that IP. So you could easily have some Russian or Chinese or, you know, or anyone essentially who has control of that IP space could say that they're AOL.com. And there, there's, there's, there's no way to know that they're not. So, so I mean, it's it's again, it's a it's a better thing than than not doing this at all. 
but I would I'm skeptical about this thing really qualifying as a as a strong additional factor. Yeah, we we should find out what the regulations are. I mean, it, it may be that they're not for that. I bet you anything. The banking lobby said, "Well, don't make it too hard. You know, allow this." Yeah. Well, yeah. If you make it too hard, no one will do it. So right, we want right. to make it. You know. Right. And again, it's better than not having it, but it would be really be better if they adopted a good you know a good multi factor solution as another factor i just want everybody to use these uh pay uh, these uh, pip cards these verisign cards it just seems like such a great way to do it oh it's a beautiful solution yeah. leo yeah, so I'm, easy fact, fact, card, I, to carry the card I, around and yep i just signed the agreement in fact yesterday uh with verisign a, a, an evaluation agreement that will give me access to their back end so i can actually play with the api i, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that i had looked at it and looked at the spec, and it looked absolutely clean and robust. So I'm going to enjoy writing some code to uh, to actually, you know, make it jump around and you know be able to authenticate my little um, my little credit cards. And I will certainly tell our listeners, uh, you know, how that looks. And you wouldn't really need uh, PPP if every if this were universal. You could use this that's, for your PPP, right? That's absolutely right. And in fact, I I purchased six of those credit card. Um, uh, form factor units, and I fully intend to actually use the VeriSign system as my primary authentication for myself and Sue and Greg. Oh no! Because it is it is just very cool. As soon as you and publicize then, PPP, you replace it. <laughs> and I know, I know, but I'll, but I'm glad I did PPP, and that'll always be our fallback. Right. If, if for any reason you know I, I I lose this relationship with VeriSign, then it'll be like okay, fine, you know that was good while it lasted. Uh, you know, and we'll be able to fall back to the perfect paper passwords. Is very, I'm sure Verisign must intend to charge people who want to implement this, right? Oh, absolutely. There is, the, I mean, and and their model is a big company model. I mean, they would. I, I don't know if it would ever be feasible for a little onesie guy right. like me to be involved. It's a, you know, it's a PayPal and an eBay and a B of A scale yeah. solution. Yeah. But I agree with you completely, Leo. Based on what I've seen. It is. It, I mean, I've got the card in my wallet. I was never carrying the football around with me because, you know, it was just I didn't want to, you know, end up with a necklace of them. Right. And and it just wasn't so convenient. But I mean, you know, I already have some credit cards and this thing is no different than, as you know, you've got one. It's Nothing. no different than, than a yeah. credit card. You know, what I'd really love to see is uh, is them the ba- You know, what happens with PayPal? You don't have your card. You can ask the security questions. It's always the same, too totally easy to you know fake this one um what i'd love to see is maybe them use now this back end bank of america's using where it says okay and, and as this guy's did you now we need to send you a code to your cell phone or your email to verify i would prefer that as a second fallback position because i yep. guess you have to yeah you can't assume that people will always have the the dongle or the card or they won't have lost it or that kind of thing so you always need a kind of a back door to it but let's make it a better back door no, I absolutely agree. And and remember, I mean, we've one of our fundamental lemmas of of security is if it's more secure, it's less convenient. Right. I mean, it's right. a trade off. And so, yes, I'm now glad that my PayPal account is locked with these two hardware tokens. I've got both the football and my little credit card, uh, both from, you know, Ver, both from Ver, VeriSign. Um hooked onto this account and I'm 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 really happy that I've done that but you know I wasn't really happy until I had the credit card format f- um token because that's easy for me to have with me all the time right. you know uh, there were several cases where I was at Starbucks and wanted to buy something but the football was at home yep. so I was like ah, oh darn 
So you were able to convert you 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 decertified the football and and use the uh, Verisign Identity Protection Card instead. No, no, no. That's the cool thing is that Verisign recently brought up they just they in their most recent version, which is now current, they can you you can have five hardware tokens simultaneously registered to a Verisign account, and PayPal supports that. So so you can leave your football authenticated on PayPal right now and add your credit card to your PayPal account. Through PayPal, not through VeriSign. Through PayPal. Yep, oh. there is a UI at PayPal, which is where I did it, and it knew that I, I could have up to five different hardware VIP tokens of different form factors, either the little the original football or the new credit card form factor, okay. simultaneously on my account. So I've got both of them on mine. Yeah, and that's not a bad idea. You have, you know, I mean, then you have kind of a backup. If you lose one, you still have the other. Well, and and for example, I've got the football sitting here right next to me, and um, and my wallet happens to be in, you know, in the back of the house because you know I'm here in my right. in my sweats right now and not in my outdoor clothes. So so I mean, it's just it's perfect. You know, I've, it's like absolutely no overhead because now I can have multiple tokens simultaneously authentic- authenticatable. Cool. It, it works. I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> we now just made it like 15 questions because I just snuck in three. <laughs> sorry. No problem. Bob Gusek in High Point, North Carolina wonders if once is good, is twice better? I've been thinking about encryption and brute force attacks, says Bob. Actually, probably any kind of attack and how they classify success in breaking some encryption. I'm not sure if there's something I'm missing. And I figure with the amount of work you've done on encryption, you'd be able to identify an issue with this approach. In the process of encrypting blocks of text that I may be sending to someone, in other words, encrypting a file, I've experimented with doing double encryption. What I do is take my clear text, encrypt it first with one key, then take this encrypted text, encrypt it with a second key. If someone should ever try to brute force this, from what I understand, they get combina- they try combinations of keys until they get clear text, but of course they'll never get clear text because I've encrypted it twice. Am I missing something? <laughs> I think this was a really great question. Um, uh, so t- to to paraphrase what Bob said, uh, he he recognizes, and we've mentioned this many times, that that the way brute force attacks work is essentially um, like with a dictionary or just starting at zero and counting up. You 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 attempt to decrypt the encrypted text waiting until something recognizable comes out of the decryption. And if suddenly you see something, you know, chunks of text that is readable, you go, whoa, we just got the key because that's the only way that you're going to be able to decrypt the encrypted text is with the proper key to run the decryption. So he says, okay, what if I do it twice? Then no matter what anyone did, there would all you could ever get, even if you got the proper key for the second encryption would be you you would be taking that wrapper of second encryption off and you'd have the first encryption but that's going to be random because we know that what good encryption does is is basically create a random mapping between so-called clear text and the cipher text so so you wouldn't be able to tell that you had ever gotten the second key by examining it as you would with a single encryption, because all you're going to get is more noise, and it's going to be indistinguishable from any of the other random noise that you get when you don't have the right second key. So he's, he's absolutely right. Um, however, I'll point out 
that that this really would pertain only if you had weak keys. That is to say, all contemporary symmetric encryption, which is essentially what we're talking about, is going to use a 128-bit key. Well, if the you know that 128 bits is phenomenal strength, given that those those the bits of the key are chosen randomly. They're not chosen randomly. If, for example, you took the 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 simple password dog and hashed it into 128 bits, because somebody else could put dog into the hash, get those 128 bits, and and apply that to the decryption. And and you know essentially reverse your 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 code. So so what you could do is if for some reason you needed to use weak passwords, then certainly using two of them would be that is exactly as he suggests encrypt, and then you use a different weak password to encrypt it again. Or for that matter, if no one knew that you had double encrypted. You could use the same password because, again, they're going to they're, they're not going to know you double encrypted. So they're going to decrypt it once and see noise and go, OK, well, I got the wrong one, even though if they did it again, they get the clear text out. So it's you know, it's an interesting idea. But but if you have a a, a for example, a really random 128 bit encryption key, that's already so strong against any kind of brute force attack that doing it twice doesn't really buy you anymore i mean because you've already got something that that isn't going to be reversible in the first place but i uh, know there's nothing there's nothing he's missing it is a it's a clever idea why do i think that pgp uses uh, double encryption it's using 128 bit to encrypt the passphrase right well and correct then, and and pgp is a public key based system so it's got a it's got a it's got a much longer key probably 124 bits for the public side and then but because you can't you can't encrypt the bulk payload with with, with public key because it's too slow the idea is that pgp will generate a random number that is a random 128 bit key or or maybe it's longer um, and then it'll just encrypt the key using the public key. So there, so there are multiple layers of encryption. One is public key, and then one is symmetric key. Because symmetric key is high speed, and that's how you do your bulk encryption. Right. And then you encrypt the key using just the public key side. Right, 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 right. Matthew Beecher in Pottstown, PA, has also been having fun with crypto. Got a lot of crypto questions today. I've been a listener of the show since episode one, and I think the advanced topics have helped a lot. I'm running a PHP-based web application. I'm currently working on the login system. As a matter of convenience, I'm forgoing SSL and instead engaging in client-side JavaScript one-way encryption. So here's what he's doing. I'm taking the user's supplied password, concatenating a known string from the GRC.com Perfect Passwords page. Hmm, interesting doing an MD5 hash, concatenating a second known string, and doing a SHA-1 hash of that. <laughs> then I take the, <laughs> He's not done yet. <laughs> then I take this blob and do an HMAC SHA-1 hash for the key from the PHP version of Perfect Paper Passwords, and I turn that into a hex string. All this in JavaScript. This is then compared with the string on the server that was hashed the same way. 
On the server, I'm storing passwords hashed with MD5 and SHA-1, then adding HMAC SHA-1 hash. To authenticate, I have three questions. <laughs> okay, yeah. I hope you're following this, Steve. <laughs> One, am I doing enough to protect the passwords without using SSL? Two, should I be using HMAC? I don't even know what that is, HMAC. We'll talk about that okay, in a second. To hash the passwords before putting them into the database. Three, do I need to do something more to protect passwords from creating accounts for the first time, knowing that whenever or whatever the client sends will have to go into the database? Should I be doing an HMAC hash before sending the password, then a regular SHA-1 hash before storing in the database? Folks, that's a lot of hash. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll bet you that Matthew wears both a belt and suspenders. This, this is a belt and suspenders system. For this, sure. this thing is, Matthew, nobody is ever going to figure out uh, you did. <laughs> by, by doing a monitoring of your wire between the client and server um, what the password was that went in the front end of this, this grinder machine that you've built that you know manages to have I mean, it's amazing to me that the same data comes out the other end each time you put each time. You put I don't the understand same. how he synchronizes the perfect paper, paper password server and client side, not the not the PPP, but the uh, the GRC password. Yeah. From what he said, I'm not sure what he's doing with PPP, how that fits in there. Um, he mentioned HMAC and, and we, it's, that's something we've never talked about. It I know what for- MD5 is and SHA-1. Those are. So they're both hashes, right? Right. And we've talked about hashing where basically you can put, um, you know, any size of stuff you want in one end and it come and what you get is a fixed size, sort of a fingerprint, uh, that so-called hash of the input. And so, for example, you know, MD5 stands for message digest. The, these hashes and another word for hash is, is a digest. And they're cryptographically strong. They're unique. Yes, um, newer ones, stronger than older ones. Um, that, for example, uh, Perfect Paper Passwords is based on or, or uses SHA two fifty six, which where where you put a whole bunch of stuff in and you get two hundred and fifty six bits out, which is stronger than MD five, which is one twenty eight, and stronger than SHA one, which is one hundred and sixty bits. But still, those are strong. And um, for example, SHA one. Remember, there's there had been some. Some a flurry of concern because people were were mistakenly saying that it had been cracked or it had been broken. Well, that wasn't the case. What what was found, however, is that it wasn't as perfect a hash as we would like. There were some there were some collisions, meaning that uh, to a higher degree than would be statistically likely, you could put different things in the front end and get a collision. That is to say, the same. 160 bits out the other end and so that made people a little uncomfortable about it that is it wasn't as as completely strong and unpredictable and random as or pseudo random as we would like the output to be so what an hmac is hmac stands for hashed message authentication code and that's like a hash but it's keyed meaning that in the same way that that we have for example a, a symmetric encryption like Rindal is is keyed where it, where it'll you give it 128 bits with Rindal that is and out comes a different 128 bits where there's a one to one mapping between the input 128 and the output 128 but that mapping is entirely determined by the Rindal key that is the symmetric key 
in the case of an HMAC, that it's a keyed hash, meaning that it's it's a hash in as much as you can put as much stuff in as you want, and but then you always get out the same size result being a hash. But the the key determines the result the, the, the result that comes out in the same way that a key on crypto determines the result that comes out. So what this is useful for is is if we look at a at a at the use of a non-keyed hash like SHA1 or MD5 or 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 any of the of the non-keyed hashes, you put something in and you get essentially a fingerprint, you know, a hash of that document. So that's useful for saying if you were to say to someone, in fact, this is how a lot of, of hashes um, on the web are used, you, you'll, you'll see like um, someone um, in the open source community will say, here's the source for this build of something, and here's the MD5 hash of it. Right. And that, that allows you to independently hash the same stuff that they did and compare the MD5 hash output to make sure that it's the same. You validate it that way. Exactly. You, and ba- basically, it's like a fingerprint. The hash is a fingerprint of, of what you feed in. Yeah. But the point is that that anyone can do this and get the same result. So what's unique about a keyed hash is that not only can it verify that the that exactly what went in resulted in the 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 proper output but by being keyed if the key is secret then you can also verify who did it that is who hashed it because somebody with a key had to have that key and that content in order to get the result so it also allows authentication in addition to 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 verification that something wasn't changed, it allows you to authenticate who provided the hash output rather than just the fact that somebody did. So anyway, um, Matthew has again. He's I mean he's come up with something uh, very strong by taking you know the password, adding to it a, a big blob of randomness from um, from our perfect passwords page, then um, then doing an MD5 of that. Adding another known string, doing an SHA one hash of that, then using an HMAC, um, uh, where the key of the HMAC is one of the perfect paper passwords keys, and then he turns that into a hex string, and that's what he sends to a server. So it's like, okay, so <laughs> wow, um, it, it it strikes me as massive overkill, but he's obviously been having fun writing javascript sure. and so i think that's fine Whatever rocks the big your boat. problem the <laughs> big problem is that he says he's foregoing ssl which means that he's he has absolutely strongly encrypted the logon aspect that is the logon phase yeah but apparently he's not using ssl so nothing so, else is encrypted exactly and and then the problem or, or the question is if he's creating a logon relationship, then state is being saved somewhere. For example, he may be returning a cookie to the client, which is this, the client session cookie, which if no SSL is being used, 
it completely exposes him to a so-called sidejacking attack because anybody monitoring the wire, and of course the only reason he's gone through all these rigam all all these jumped through all these hoops is that he's he's protecting himself against somebody sniffing his traffic. Well, anybody sniffing the traffic would see everything else that's being done, including whatever he's doing to maintain state, which if it's not wrapped in an SSL tunnel to make it snoop proof, then somebody could grab the cookie, assuming that he's using cookies to maintain state or whatever else, and instantly impersonate that logged on user. So what he's done is he's protected the event of logging on, but he's made it unnecessary. He's closed the barn door before the horse got away, but the horse wasn't ever in there. Or the no, horse went out see. the window. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, that's really the problem is he, he protected the event of logging on, but unfortunately, the rest of his dialogue, the rest of the conversation, without being protected by a, by a secure tunnel, however, it, it, you know, everything he does from then on not only can be, can be recorded and sniffed, but it's, I don't see how he's protecting anybody from obtaining whatever ongoing credential was established by that one-time galactically secure logon. Yeah. I mean, no one will ever figure out what that hex string should be, but now they don't have to. All they have to do is grab the cookie that gets returned, wow. and they've, they are able to impersonate the, the person who painfully logged on the first time. Oh, well. So, you know, neat idea, Matthew. But um, I don't know, unless you are continuing to – see, he said client-side JavaScript one-way encryption, to which to me meant he's going through all this to encrypt the logon, but nothing else. You could encrypt so, the rest of the conversation by hand, I guess. You certainly could, and that's what would be necessary in order right. to – and again, that gets pretty tricky, though, because you, um, you, you need to do it in a way – that was snoop proof. And I guess my point is that that's all been done. That's all worked out with SSL. Right. So rather than foregoing that, I think it's probably a good idea. Now, Steve, you, you can't, you're, you can't tell people to not reinvent the wheel. You like to do that yourself. That's true. And so, so I would say that, that Matt has taken a great first step <laughs> by, by nailing down the log on phase. Right. Now he's got to, you know, he's got to continue. He's, he's, if he still has any energy left after all that JavaScript coding of all crypto. <laughs> oh, it's a nightmare too. But I mean, I, I think that's why you do something like that. He's obviously a student, probably a computer science student. And you do that to learn all this stuff. Well, I hope he's listening because he's probably going, oh, shoot. I didn't even think about that. Brian so, Dewey. That's glad he asked the question. That, it is a great question. Brian Dewey in Crestwood, Kentucky needs 89 security patches. And by now, who knows? <laughs> exactly. 90, 91, 92. Steve, I've just been tasked to reload Windows XP on my father-in-law's computer. I'm concerned that Microsoft hasn't yet released Service Pack 3 for XP. That comes out uh, early next year, I think. Oh, wait, well, it's in beta now. Is it going to be that? Well, of course, early next year is not that far away. a couple away, months, so. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is in beta now. I think I think they said 2008. I'll have to check. I've been searching the internet and I've located a few websites that offer third-party slipstreaming of the hotfixes. I personally only trust... Oh, boy, third-party slipstreaming. Yeah. I only trust downloading my patches directly from Microsoft. What I haven't located is a reputable and authoritative list of hotfixes that are essential before I connect the computer to the internet. 
Are you aware of a master list of redistributable hotfixes and associated URLs? Even though I've put this PC behind a NAT router, I'd feel safer if I could download and write to CD all the patches since 2004, August 2004. Am I safe if I only visit uh, update.microsoft.com? Brian Dewey, spin right customer since version 3.1. First of all, I don't think they would fit on a CD. You probably need a DVD. <laughs> well, let's see. The um, service pack I mean, 2 was 273 megabytes. Yeah, and there have been some big ones since then. Okay, so this is an interesting question. He's he, he uh, It sounds like, first of all, he's concerned about putting his a, a raw Windows machine on the Internet. And, in fact, that's sort of an interesting fun controversial issue because he's right if you were to reload xp and hook it without protection onto the internet in order to get it updated before it had a chance to get patched it would be taken over Uh, unless you have the firewall turned on and that's exactly that's exactly right leo now I think he said, he says, even though I have put this, his PC, meaning his, his father-in-law's PC, behind a NAT router, I would feel safer if I could download and write to CD all, or when we know it's going to take a DVD, right. probably all the patches released since August 2004. Let me, let me just say one thing right away. If he, puts, if he only goes to Microsoft.com uh, to get these updates and he's got his firewall on, he's safe, right? Yes. Either his firewall or behind a NAT router. Right. The the as far so as, as long I, as he doesn't go to malicious websites, he's not going to get anything else. Well, there are there there are two natures of attack. There is the there are all the services that the original build of of what was it uh, the build number I've forgotten now. I used to know the original build of XP had some funky like it was a round number. Oh, twenty six hundred was that it? No, I'm I guarantee I might, you it wasn't 2600. <laughs> I, might, I, might, I might be confusing it with, an, with another OS, but yeah, um, I think it was 3000 for uh, uh, Vista, but I can't remember. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, they try to get a round number out. Yeah, they cheat, 6, for Vista. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the, so so the point is that that original build of XP, as we know, famously had a firewall that was turned off by default, and thus. The reason that there were so many problems right. and the, the 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 malware, the worms, the viruses, the things that are that were able to infect those versions of XP, though those initial problems that XP had are out on the Internet still sending packets at random all over the place. And we'll probably never get the Internet cleared of all that. There's so, always going to be one some Windows 98 machine that's sitting in a corner collecting dust that nobody's touched in years. It's spreading sasser exactly. that's all it does <laughs> spread sasser so so again there are there are two types of attacks there's the unsolicited attack which is outbound which is packets from the outside coming in through no protection hitting any of the many services that were vulnerable in that original build of XP, I mean, it just makes me shudder, you know, how much we've gone through since that original build of XP. Then, as you mentioned, the other class of attack are where you visit a web page that is taking advantage of of problems that have now been known for years, but is hoping to get people who don't have Windows XP patched up to date. So, so yes, Leo, if he were to only go to Microsoft.com or I'm sure that that first version of XP had the the, the Windows update um, um, 
button in the start menu because I push it all the time when I'm setting up a brand new Windows XP system. So, I mean, and, and I guess I'm a good example. I'm behind strong NAT and I put these machines on the net. And the first thing I do is, you know, go to Windows Update and then I go make a fresh pot of coffee because, you know, it's 89 and counting security patches. And you got to reboot, I think, about five or six times now because the patches have patches. As we've, as we've discussed before. And then if you add any of the optional stuff, like the .NET stuff is still optional, then there's been a lot of, of security fixes for those too. So, um, But there apparently is a place on Microsoft's site where they are, they are listing patches that are, can be manually downloaded. Um, the problem is I don't know how current and up-to-date it is, and there really is nothing wrong as long as you're behind a NAT router or if you did not have a NAT router, just turning the, the built-in original XP firewall on will give you enough protection to get yourself patched and updated. All right. And, and by the way, you can go to a Windows Update, and if you uh, go to the uh, network administrator mode, you can download these updates standalone. So the default mode on Windows Update is to is to download and install and not save them. But you can change your Windows Update mode to a mode that will allow you to download those files. So you could go to another computer, get a list of all the hotfixes, which is what he was asking for, and uh, and then put those hotfixes on a, on a CD or a D, as you and say, then- a DVD or two. And then mar- and then march through them one by one, yeah, and and it's, install them. It's not a roll up, and that's what's great about a service pack. It's all rolled up into one. Yep. But at least you can do that. Now I'm I'm looking at Windows Update, and I can't remember. And I'm looking at the Vista version. I change settings. You have to you have to change it into a network, a different mode, a network, uh, in, you know, uh, a sysadmin mode, basically. Um. I'm not sure exactly where to do that. They've changed how this looks. But but you can't. I know you can do it. And we, I've answered that question a few times on the show. So you can get those files individually on another computer. That would be another way to do it. A painful way to do it, but you could do it. William Marcus in Mountain Vernon, Washington, can't find his NAT. Where's my NAT? I know it's here somewhere. Steve, help. I'm starting a small business while shopping at the various stores. I can't seem to find no stinking NAT routers. <laughs> Now, one store employee seems to know what I'm talking about. I, I want to actually look at and hold what I purchase. Where are those NAT routers hiding? <laughs> no NATs! I love the question because I can just see poor William walking into a Staples or Circuit City or, or something and saying NAT. And they say, huh? you want a what router? Huh? I want a NAT router. I've been listening to security now. And Stephen Leo keeps saying, you know, I, I want to be behind a NAT router. And the, the guy at the store says, well, we got routers, but I don't think we have any NAT routers. Or I don't think our routers have NATs. What is NATs? What are NATs? Yes. <laughs> anyway, I love the question. William, all routers are NAT routers. I, I guess I just say NAT routers because I'm a geek uh, or a nerd or something. Um, I don't think you could. I mean, it's not the case of, for example, high-end Cisco routers are NAT routers, although they have NAT capability built into them but all of those little consumer boxes for $49 I don't think there's ever been one that wasn't a NAT router because the reason they were created was for IP sharing which is what NAT is all about 
NAT, of course, standing for network address translation. So you can you can confidently go into whatever store you've been going into and confusing the poor salespeople and just say, I want a router. And, you know, any of the consumer routers have NAT built in and you'll be getting NAT protection because they've all got it. Yeah. Yeah. Just when it says a broadband router, that's that's what it is. Yep. Not a switch. A switch wouldn't have NAT necessarily, or a, a hub, or a ra- a bridge, but a but a router. That's what a ra- that's what routing is. Exactly. Andy Lighty of Escondido, California, has an interesting fishing idea for you, Steve. He says you've done a great job discussing the benefits of using the Verisign PayPal security fob, aka the football. I like the recent suggestion about waiting for a prompt to enter the security number as. An additional anti-phishing measure, but the system still sees vulnerable to a one-time phishing event if a user is duped into providing his code to a phishing site. Even if the bad guys can only use the code once, that one-time use could be pretty bad. What if we turn the security code concept around and ask PayPal to provide a security code to us? For, oh, that's interesting. For verification, uh-huh. they really are PayPal. Oh, I like this. When I enter my username, PayPal could display a code that should match the code of my fob within the next say 30 to 60 seconds. If it does match, I could then reply with my password and a subsequent code feeling quite confident I wasn't being fished. Obviously, PayPal would have to change their system to enable this and there'd be some issues with time syncing, but it seems like this would be a pretty strong anti-phishing method. Some users wouldn't be happy with the extra delay and would opt out by others, maybe willing to take the extra time in, in order to increase their security. What do you think? Well, you're right. I have to say it, it was really clever. Very for- clever. To think about this, I'm a very good friend of mine who is probably smiling as he's listening to us because he listens to security now had suggested this several times uh, in email. And I have I've been just swamped and haven't gotten back to him about it. And but he was suggesting it relative to perfect paper passwords because he observed that, you know, the server in in the PPP system knows the sequence of passcodes that are printed. So. So you could further strengthen the per- the perfect paper password system by by having it first tell you what is the next code and then you enter the one afterwards. It would con- that process would consume two perfect paper password passcodes, but you would get some authentication that you were that, that it was you were really talking to a server that that knew where you were in the sequence and get some good anti-phishing protection. Uh, and in fact, it's a little more direct with perfect paper passwords because there isn't this issue of time. Now, we could strengthen Andy's idea a little bit based on the revelation that we shared last week. I think it was last week, maybe it was the week before. Um, remember where we, we um, an, another observant person who hangs out in our news groups realized that the first digit of the football, because the football uh, is time-based, the first digit is not random. It's sequential. It goes zero through nine and wraps around again. The reason being that if the clock has drifted, then when you give the six-digit code to PayPal, who, of course, forwards it through their back-end server relationship to VeriSign, where the actual um, verification is performed, um, that allows the server to deal with sort of plus or minus. Let, let, let's see, if the code changes every 30 seconds, then that means 
in 10 of those, that's 300 seconds, which is going to be five minutes. So you could essentially handle a plus or minus two and a half minute drift in the, in the clock in the football and, and not harass the user by saying you got to enter more codes. Anyway, my point is that we could strengthen Andy's idea by, and solve the time sync problem by having the server that is going to provide us with a code. Um, we instead, we push the button. We start. Yes, we start, but only give it the first digit. Uh-huh. So we push the button, give it the first digit. It should then af- definitively be able to tell us the other five. Because by giving it the first digit, we've we've compensated for any sync loss that, that might have occurred since we used it before, as long as it's not more than two and a half minutes, in which case we couldn't be sure whether we were two and a half minutes bef- uh, be- two and a half minutes behind or two and a half minutes before, right. because we would have wrapped around. But but if we give it the first digit within that window, it should be able to definitively give us the other five and. We would then know that we were talking to a site that knew that you know who we were because we'd given it our, our username. It had looked up our our football ID and figured out what should be on the display at that time. Then we would, in order to prove to it that we were really us, we'd have to wait for a thirty second boundary to occur where that first digit would change to the next incremental one, but we get a a new five. And so we would then give it the next, you know, essentially all six digits and say, okay, and, you know, we're convinced you're you and here we are, we're us. Right, right. So it's a cool idea. I like it. Uh, Of course, the people who are most likely to get fished, (laughs) I mean, in other words, if you're smart enough to have the thing, the football, to do all this, you're not going to get fished. Right. (laughs) The people are going to get fished are grandma. My my wife, who's not sophisticated, she's not going to do all this, right? So, but it's a neat idea. Now, here's the big problem with all of this: is that is that all of this assumes that you have an SSL connection, yeah, and you have verified that your certificate is W is HTTPS colon that is you have a, an SSL connection, and you check the certificate and verified that it's www.paypal.com. And that the chain of authority goes back to VeriSign from whom PayPal gets their certificates. In other words, none of this works due to the possibility of a man in the middle. As long as if, if a site were phishing us and we did not have a secure connection, then everything we've talked about, whether Andy's idea or my friend John's idea about the idea of, of the server telling you something first then if there's somebody in the middle then then that person that that entity in the middle could simulate everything we've just talked about that is they would they would get the site from from PayPal show it to you if you gave for example in 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 the enhanced version of Andy's idea you give it the zero you're really giving it to the phishing site, which turns around and gives the zero to PayPal. PayPal sends it back the five digits to prove that it's PayPal, but it's not. It's the phishing site. I mean, well, I mean pay- PayPal is, sends it to the phishing site. The phishing site sends those five digits to you. 
So the problem is you have uh, more strength in your belief that right. this is not a fishing site when in fact it is. Right. And this is the problem with any of these approaches is is the man you know, in the, the middle, the man in the, the middle. Yes. And so a, a, a this would absolutely defeat a less clever non man in the middle fishing site. And there are many of those that are just static websites pretending to be PayPal, but it isn't absolute proof that you don't have somebody in the middle. The absolute proof is that you've got an SSL connection and you have taken the time to verify that, you know, you've got a certificate that was issued to PayPal and signed by VeriSign, in which case, you know, you, you're golden and there's no one able to, to, sn to sniff what's going on b between you and that site. Yeah. But a neat idea. I really Very like that idea. idea. Jay in New Hampshire poses a question which suggests some interesting issues. He says, hi, Steve and Leo. I had a quick question about a discussion I had with a friend the other day. I was telling my friend she should use a secure connection when she's using a public computer, since all you got to do is put an S in the HTTP line. The question she asked was, if the server she's currently using can decrypt the sessions, it will. The server she's currently using can decrypt the sessions at will. We both work for the government and are well aware of Big Brother watching us. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, that was hmm. encouraging. Hmm. Which uh, is, wonder we what, work for Big Brother and we realize uh, Big Brother's watching what us. What branch they work for. Uh, wonderful. Which is why I said stick to personal time. But <laughs> the question is valid. Is Big Brother watching us when we use HTTPS? You ask, you tell us, Jay. Well, th you're right that his question was a little ambiguous. I wasn't quite sure what he was talking about, but but it brought up a couple interesting points. First of all, he was suggesting that you could always put an S after the HTTP not to true. create H exactly to create HTTPS, which is not necessarily the case. Um, it is well because in order for that to work, the server must support SSL connections meaning that it must have the, the SSL port open, which is not 80, which is what normal web browsing uses, but is, is 443 instead. So it must have that open, and it must have a, an SSL certificate signed by somebody who your browser trusts. And we've talked about this whole notion of certificate authorities where our browsers have a long list of authorities whose signatures they trust. So, so the problem is that these certificates are not free, and many smaller sites won't be spending the whatever it is, $700 a year, in order to allow users to make secure connections. Typically, it's only sites which have a need for a secure connection that have gone out of their way to make that possible. So it's, it's certainly not the case that any that any site you're visiting can accept an S, and in some cases, for example, the the machine at a given domain which can accept an S, that is the HTTPS and SSL connection, may be different than the normal web machine. For example, I'm, people who have been paying attention may have noticed sometimes it'll say, you know, secure .domain .com meaning that that's a machine that's able to do secure connections. It'll say that in addition to HTTPS, but if they normally go to just a non-HTTPS connection, it'll, they'll, they'll be at like www.domain.com. Right. So, so there's that. But, 
But essentially, her question was, if the server she's currently using can decrypt the sessions at will, I think what, what Jay was asking was whether the – if she's – she's it sounds like she was doing something of a personal nature at work, not on her personal time, and he was suggesting that somebody like I, local IT could be monitoring her web traffic if she was not using an SSL connection. So, of course, he's been listening to security now. Obviously, he's a listener because he sent this to us. So he knows that if she uses SSL, it'll create a secure connection to the remote server. And that, of course, that server decrypts it. So the idea is that I I think what Jay was suggesting was that using a secure connection, she could get out past the local network watchers out onto the internet and to a remote server where it would be decrypted. And the point is that SSL is a point-to-point security. That is a point-to-point encryption. It encrypts it at your browser, and it decrypts it at its destination, whatever that is. But at that point, it's back in the clear. So the server can certainly decrypt it. It has to in order to be able to provide the services that she's asking for through that encrypted tunnel. So in other words, yes, right. So in other words, you can't always use S, and even if you did, you couldn't always be safe. Right. Unless you use VPN or something. (laughs) And see, (laughs) that's why it's unclear. Does he mean the server side? Because if he means the server side, of course it's unencrypted then. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to deal with you. Yeah, I, I, I think he says, you know, he says we both work for the government and are well aware of Big Brother watching us. Which is why he means, I said stick to personal time. Yeah, so he means so, if you use it at work, can they see what you're doing? And the answer is yes, as you said. Exactly. Right. And so by all means, if that's a concern, try to add the S, and you will get you will get a secure connection if the far side is able to accept one. Right. Dusan Malatich in Babylon, New York, solves PC tracking mystery. No. It comes as a, <laughs> that was well done, Leo. It came as a surprise to me that the last question addressed in episode 118, while partially answered, did not lead to the discussion about flash cookies, particularly as I first learned about them during an earlier Security Now episode. Hey, we know so much that we forget things. And that info provided then answered identical questions I've had in the past. It turns out that three out of three financial institutions I use online plant flash cookies. Wow. Uh huh. To track their users' status, including B of A. I hope many other listeners alert you to this, leading to a good discussion of such semi-hidden techniques which are important for computer security in general. I'm particularly angered by this practice, as the designers obviously have chosen an object poorly understood, if at all known, to most of the public and have not disclosed it to the users in clear manner. Well, fooled me. Typical spyware-like methods deserving critique and raised alertness to it. So okay. that's interesting because uh, we remember we went through this whole rigmarole where I turned off cookies and stuff and so forth and so on. And it, 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 the, it needed to be, I mean, I, I determined it was cookies, but maybe it is flash cookies. Well, and maybe, you know, you and I talked about this. We've talked about it before here. We also did a whole session on it when you and I were in Toronto a couple of years ago yep. and showed the, the viewers of call of your call for help show um, where to go and how to turn these off, which I'd completely so, forgotten. So I wanted to mention that to everyone who's who's listening, because many people wrote in 
having done this experiment, they deleted their cookies, they emptied their browser cache, they shut down their browser, they rebooted their computer, they took their laptop to somewhere else, and they were, I mean, and literally at least 40 people wrote in and said, it still knew me. How did it know me? Right. And so I appreciated uh, this confirmation that that this use of flash cookies is becoming more widespread. Clearly, in this case, as he says, three out of the three financial institutions he use plant flash cookies. So to all listeners into Google, you want to put flash player settings manager. Just put in flash player settings manager and you get a link to the Macromedia, maybe it says Adobe now. I'm not sure. I don't remember whether they, they've changed the URL. But the point is, most of us have Flash loaded in our machines now, which unfortunately is why the banks have all started using it. It's something that survives, as many use, as many listeners have discovered, it survives casual cookie deletion. And exactly as, as, as this guy has mentioned, it, it annoys him because it is unknown and is unclear. The good news is it's possible to control these settings and to prevent sites from using flash cookies if for some reason you really didn't want that or to restrict sites that you have specifically allowed. Anyway, there's good flash cookie management available, and it's a web-based interface. You don't use your local flash player running it like standalone because it is a, a an embedded web page um, uh, object. Instead, if you put in Flash Player Settings Manager, that'll take you to the Flash site where you're then able to go to some web pages to bring up a little tabbed interface. Basically, it runs your Flash Player on the page and, and gives you access to a user interface you never knew you had. And you're able to browse through and see the domains that have registered cookies on your machine. You can delete them right there. You're able to change settings. You're able to do some cons- worrisome things like you tell it, don't ever turn on my microphone and camera without letting me know. It's like, okay, well, that's probably a good thing to tell it. So you're able to do that and a number of other things. So again, Flash Player Settings Manager, and poke around in there. You'll find out who has stored cookies, so you know you're able to delete them. You're able to then lock them and prevent them from changing. Um, Anyway, there's a whole bunch of tabs and settings that are definitely worth poking around in. I don't see Bank of America in my uh, cookies, however, so I don't. Maybe I'm special. And wouldn't you need to see, wouldn't you see somewhere that Flash was running? Uh, you don't see it. it. It's completely done behind the scenes using JavaScript. So you can't uncheck the box that says allow third-party Flash content to store data on your computer. It doesn't, JavaScript doesn't even have Flash going. Wow, that's interesting. Now, is there a chance you would have changed these settings in the past? Yes, you well, of course. I had, I, had, I, had, uh, I had it set at storage to zero. Right. Uh, but it's but there's more than that. You also probably want to deny all cookies and so forth. But then you have the same problem denying cookies uh, on, a, on a browser as well, which is that some sites don't like it. Right. Um, I see. I'm looking at the sites that have placed cookies on, you know, visited websites. Um, and they're all, you know, they're mostly sites that do flash media in one way or the other, like YouTube and Blip TV, Ustream. Um, mm-hmm. I don't see my bank. 
So I don't, anyway, I don't know. Twitter uses it for some reason. That's interesting. My guess is that the banks probably issue standard cookies and flash cookies. You know, they probably just throw as much state <laughs> as they can. I'm sure they do. They say they throw as much state sure. at you as they sure. can. Sure. And anything they get back helps them to recognize you. Right. Which is fine. I mean, in, yeah. in that case, I, I want them to, to have some sort of way to recognize me. Agreed. Interesting. Thank you, Dusan, for that. Uh, now, where did uh, where did the questions go? Oh, here, they are. here they are. <laughs> they got buried under your flash browser. 800 pages of browsers. <laughs> Dan in Needmore, Pennsylvania needs more help with his PayPal token. Hi, Steve. Just heard you mention the first number on the PayPal security fob increments sequentially. I tried mine. It doesn't. First digit was a two. Second a five. The third a nine. And, I, and I'm reading this. I'm thinking, oh, no. What? And, and then he said. These attempts are several minutes apart. So you have to do it run one after the other. Exactly. Oh, okay. I wanted Dan to know, uh, to put his mind at rest, that the digits are changing even if you're not seeing them. Every 30 because, seconds. Exactly. Because the football, as we finally refer to it, unlike the credit card, the VeriSign credit card, the, the, the PayPal, eBay, VeriSign football is, is clock-based. So th- those digits are changing, cycling zero through nine, the first digit, zero through nine and back again, as we were talking about before, whether you're displaying them or not. Um, so you just have so, to keep pushing it every few seconds to really see it. And catch it across those 30-second boundaries. Yeah. And then you will absolutely see this thing incrementing sequentially. Yeah. Makes sense. James Kilner in Israel has a correction and then needs a suggestion. Steve, Leo, you're wrong about the use of the Firefox master password. I was listening to you talk on the Tech Guy radio show number 403 podcast version about Firefox's master password. What caught my ear in particular was your claim that this password can be subjected to a brute force attack. So you should make it long and make sure it uses different types of characters. You then said you'll only ever need to type it in when you want to view all of the stored passwords. That's wrong. No, no, that you didn't say that. I would have corrected you on that. Yeah, I didn't think I said that, but I, you know, I thought, oops, if I did, then we want to make that a correction for the record. I enter it every time I launch Firefox or actually, Every time I launch Firefox and then go to a page that needs a password. So does this guy. Yeah. I use Firefox to store my passwords, for example, for Gmail, so I don't have to remember them all the time. That's the point of being able to have Firefox remember your passwords. When I start up in Firefox in the morning and load up Gmail or any other site that has a password stored, I have to type in the master password. Right. That's me too. If I have to close down Firefox for any reason, for example, it's leaking memory again, and then restart it, I have to put in the master password again. So it's not as simple as you suggest to just make the password into something really long and difficult to brute force because you'll only have to use it to view all the passwords. That's not the case. Can you suggest a way to store a long password securely so I can copy and paste it in on a regular basis? And that's why I really put the question up here right. because I first wanted to correct the record if I had said that you only needed to type it in order to see all your other passwords, but also because he asked an interesting question. How could he have, for example, one of those nasty passwords from GRC's Perfect Passwords page, um, and but store it on his computer, yet still use it, because he wouldn't want someone to discover that. Well, one thing you could do is you could look at that quacky-looking thing, which is impossible to memorize or do anything with, and find something in it that is memorable as a split point. And when you... So essentially, you you store it that way, but but you enter it in a different order. You take that split point and copy like the last 
X characters of it, maybe it's got like an exclamation point pound sign, and that's memorable to you. So you do it from the pound sign to the end and paste that in, then do it from the front of that wacky password to the exclamation point. That is, do the, the front portion and then paste that in second. So you've, you've essentially, you've, you've taken, you've cut it at some point and you reversed those pieces. Well, that means that anyone who got that password from your computer, first of all, has no idea that you're a person who does this, nor whether you, you chopped it in one place or in two places. And if they tried to use it with Firefox as is, it wouldn't work. You have some way of mutating it so that it does. Or you could just add a couple of your own characters to the end of it or in the middle or wherever. Just you know, So you take something like that, which is already absolutely strong against brute force, and change it some way. Yeah. I just, you know, I just have one that's hard, hard to remember, hard to brute force, but easy to remember. It's possible yep. to create those as well. Yeah. For example, many people, after we were originally talking about passwords, said, what about the first letters of the lyrics of a song that we like? Right. It's like, yeah, there's a good source of a pseudo random character stream, which nobody else would be able to guess, but which you can, by running the lyrics through your mind and typing the characters as you say them, you can reproduce the password. You create the string algorithmically and you can remember the algorithm because it's simple. Another one I've heard before and but don't use is uh, you do the first initials of the last the initials of the last name of the last 10 presidents, capitalizing them if they're Republican. Something like that. So, you know. (laughs) Well, that would lock me out. I'd have to figure You'd out. Have to remember it. I have to get a, a paper and pencil. You can start with Nixon. So you capital N, go to capital Google F, <laughs> and then a lowercase C for Carter, and then a capital R for Reagan, and then a lowercase C for Clinton. Oh no, I left out a Bush in there somewhere. Yeah, that's the point. <laughs> There's a B, and then a lowercase C, capital B, lowercase C. See, that what would work? You'd have to. Rebe- and- and the problem is, if this election goes the way we're thinking, it's always going to end up with a BCBC. BCBC, BCBC. <laughs> That's a good point. Didn't think of that one. Uh, let us move on to uh, question 11, and then we're going to take a break before our special question, our brilliant idea of the month. Uh, but first, Jeff in Manila and the Philippines and many others have been paying close attention. Steve and Leo, quick question regarding the Buffalo wireless router that Leo and Paul discussed. On our last episode, actually two episodes ago of Windows Weekly, the Zune episode, Leo suggested getting the Buffalo router since it supports both WEP and WPA because the Zune 30, the old Zune, doesn't support WPA. From my understanding of previous Security Now episodes, WEP is just as good as not employing any sort of protection on your network. Wouldn't the WEP part of it be a vector for attack and eventually compromise your network, even if you had WPA on? And I think he's probably right. Um, no, no, the, because the, these routers are designed are, to segregate the two. They are for sure? Pretty sure. Okay. Well, that I didn't know, and so many people also wrote in about this. Many people said, well, wait a wanna, minute. You know? want to make sure, obviously, that the web network was, was as if it were a second, ne- second network. It didn't give you access to the full network. Yeah. Just to the, and inter- that's, just to the internet. And that's my problem, is that I would think... I mean, we, we've talked about relatively sophisticated active attacks, for example, ARP spoofing, where, where if you were able to get access to Wi-Fi, then you could fool the other machines on the network into believing that your machine was the gateway and route all the traffic oh. through you. So I, I'm worried that the web leg 
might just be on a switch in the same way that the WPA leg would be. And that, that would they be may insufficient, huh? Really be. Yeah. So um, I think I'm going to have to pursue this because, I mean, so many people were interested that I, you know, it's worth me tracking down a Buffalo router that has this and, and do a little research. There are a couple of routers designed for this, you know, situation where you have some devices that are web only. Yep. Um, and I just but, assumed they did it the right way, but that was probably a mistake. I should probably find out. Uh, and in in any event, it's certainly the case that that you wouldn't want to leave WEP on all the time. So unfortunately, you know, somebody who's a Zune user would pro- who uh, like a Zune first generation Zune who needs WEP all the time would tend to have it on all the time. I was originally discussing this as a solution for well, what if your friends came over. And they had a laptop that didn't support WEP. Um, how would you let them in without having to give them your precious WPA password? It's like, well, okay, you know, you can have it on for a while. That reduces your window of exposure. But again, from a from an absolutely how strong can we be security standpoint, all the people who wrote in about this question are correct because if if the router allowed the WEP network to touch the WPA network, all bets are off. Right. They have this one-touch secure system. Right. That, that's, I think, their acronym A-R-S-S. and their idea. For- yeah. yeah. I'm, trying to, I'm reading the specs, trying to figure out if it, if it talks about that, but I, it's not clear. When two or more client AOSS clients attach to the AOSS network, the client and router automatically negotiate the highest level of security the router can support. So if one supports WEP and the other WPA, it automatically adjusts the security to a level both clients support. See, that's not it then. Yeah, and and in fact, what that sort of says is that it will lower the security of your it. network yeah. to to the to the um the lowest encryption that any given advice device is able to right. have lowest and, common denominator but that stinks and, and leo it it must be in fact that these networks are together because who would you know if, if you zoomed if you use zoom over web to get to your router the point is you want to then get to your server where all your zoom music is stored see i was thinking it was ah right i was thinking it was like having two routers one was set for WEP, and that was and that was then bridging to a WPA router. It would be nice if it were so, but it, to me, it, sound it sounds like it. sounds it, like it's not because you know you're going to want to be able to get to any other machine in your network, right? Well, from, if you want to do that, you're right. You're absolutely right. If the Zoom needs to then get to a PC, it, this you couldn't do it that way. Right. I was just thinking, oh, it, it gives something like a Nintendo DS access to the internet without giving it access to the subnet. But apparently, that's not the case. It sounds like I it lowers. I no, in fact, I'm reading the specs. It says specifically it lowers the security of the network to match the the, the new thing. <laughs> well, on I, I'm sure on a device by device level, so that and 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 that's really the cool part of this is that um, a given yeah, laptop. Yeah, because it couldn't change the WP. If it's a WPA laptop, it's not going to change it all of a sudden to web. Exactly. Exactly. So so it's able to establish individual encryption links right. at the highest encryption level that each device can handle the problem is you bring one web device in that's your vector exactly your attack vector all right coming up in just a bit ernie moreau from Kelowna, bc with the clever observation of the week award we'll get to that in a moment but before we do i do want to thank the folks at astaro 
the Starro is such a great company. They've been really uh, staunch supporters of security now from the beginning because they're they're into security. I mean, that's the thing for a Starro. They're all about security. So they know the more you know, the more you're going to be interested in security and the more likely you're going to look for an Astaro solution. Astaro is a UTM. I call it a UTA. It's a UTM. I still don't know what it means, but it's Unified Threat Management is what it does. And it does everything, everything, everything you'd ever want. This is what it looks like a router. The security gateway is just a box, beige box. Looks like a router, but boy, listen to what it does. I mean, you get everything. A complete set of security technologies, a mix of best of breed and open source and commercial software covering uh, email security. So you get anti-spam, anti-phishing, dual virus protection, dual scans on your email, the encryption, transparent encryption. So you get PGP and uh, SMIME automatically if you want it. Oh, it's and by the way, I should emphasize all of this is absolutely in your control. It's it's very flexible. Anything you want. Uh, you can get web filtering, which means complete control over content, antivirus for the web. You get anti-spyware, control peer-to-peer and instant messaging. And, of course, you get what you'd ex- the, the basic stuff that you'd expect, which is firewall. Uh, you get intrusion protection. Um, you also get a, a, a VPN. You get remote access via SSL as well as IPsec and LTTP, L2TP over IPsec, plus PPP, PPTP tunneling with SSL VPN. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, if you, <laughs> if you want to know more, there's two ways to find out. You could just call them or visit their website, astaro.com. You can even get a demo unit into your office for free. Call 877, the number 4, Astaro, 877-427-8276. And if you're a non-commercial user, you could try it on any beige box. Just put the software on a PC and you've got it, including licenses for the Astaro up-to-date, the antivirus, the anti-spam updates, everything free, all the subscriptions. Astaro.com slash security now for that non-commercial version. 877, the number four, Astaro, to get a demo unit in your business. Just remember the name. When you need security, you need Astaro. We thank them so much for their support on security now. Are you ready for the last question? Absolutely. The last question. The last observation. It's not even a question. Not even a question. Ernie Moreau in Kelowna, B.C. wins the Clever Observation of the Week Award. He says in episode 118... James Earl Ford from Apple Valley mentioned the following. BioPassword offers the only multi-factor authentication software that combines a user's login credential, you know, a login and ID password, login ID and password, with the behavioral biometric of keystroke dynamics, that is, your unique typing rhythm. I just want to mention this sounds great until keystroke loggers become more sophisticated and also log the timing. Then you're hoped. <laughs> Good point. That's right, man. We we are seeing serious evolution of technology in keystroke loggers. I've been I've been noticing some reports out on the web that this notion we we remember we've talked about keyboards cl- clicking on keys and having the keyboards jump around the screen so that yeah. the the coordinates were different. Well, it is absolutely the case that keystroke loggers are now being found on machines which take snapshots of the screen and are specifically designed to literally do as good a job as the designers can of capturing the login experience. And so it's if they don't already log timing, and if timing with this biometric keystroke dynamics, which I'm still sort of skeptical about anyway, um, you know, if that ended up being uh, 
a popular thing to do, well, they certainly capable of logging the timing on the client side and reproducing the timing when they when they want to pretend to be somebody that they're not. Well, there you go. I just thought that was a clever observation and Ernie wins the clever clever observation of the week award. Now, how do people if they want to ask questions for next time or make suggestions or make clever observations, how do they do that? I forgot. I have no, no idea. No, it's grc.com slash feedback. There you go. Simple That'll as that. take you to a page uh, where there's a form. You fill it out, and it comes to me directly. And, of course, grc.com is a great site to remember for a lot of things. Steve's vast array of free security software, including Shields Up, the most trusted uh, firewall test, absolutely free. You get all kinds of programs, including uh, demos of his PPP program, Perfect Paper Passwords. It's all at grc.com. You also can get 16 kilobit versions of this show. That way you can uh, share it with your bandwidth impaired friends and transcripts, which make it a little easier to follow. You can read along or, you know, get in bed and read. Put it on your Kindle. Yes. In fact, we should mention that you and I have both ordered the new Amazon Kindle. I resisted. I, uh, yeah, you tried. I didn't. I just went right for it because I, I got to, you know, mess around with this thing, see what it's like, how it works. So we'll probably have some impressions to share in two weeks when we record our next episode. Yeah, not not even that long. Who knows? Maybe even next week. You know, I'm back. They're, they're back ordered. No kidding. Oh, yeah. Huh. I'm not going to be able well, to they, get mine I, until early December. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't, I'm, don't mean to say yay. Did you say yay? I, <laughs> I, well, no. What I was going to say was I got confirmation that mine has been shipped. So Yeah, I, I will, should have ordered it sooner. And I know Amazon that they often... Under 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 promise and over deliver. So uh, they say December third, but I may have it before the next. Well, December third would still be before the next episode. You know why I succumbed? I don't like the form factor. I have a Sony, the newest Sony reader, as you do. Well, it's the ugliest looking thing I've ever seen, Leo. Yeah. I mean, same I screen just... too, although it isn't exactly the same. Fewer shades of gray may make it crisper. I don't know. I'll be interested. It, That's I, I, a little worrisome, actually, because the original PRS five hundred, the first Sony reader, it had four shades of gray. I hope that this thing didn't get locked in oh. with the previous Sony style screen, or we're not going to be happy no, because the, the, the 505 is a much better screen on the new Sony. And I, I read with it every morning. The thing that's put me over the top, I, I get several newspapers. I get the wall street journal, the New York times, the San Francisco Chronicle. That's a that's lot of papers stacking up. You, you stay so connected. Well, and, that's part and, of my job. Uh, yeah. But it stacks up and I'm really, it's, I'm killing a lot of trees and you can get all those cheaper on the kindle automatically delivered every morning i just hate the ink rubbing off on my hands with newsprint <laughs> yeah I, I, well I, there's I, things i could do with newsprint like clip things that i don't know if i'll be able to do those with a kindle i'm very interested if i can somehow bookmark or somehow clip this content you know you can email me your uh, pdfs from now on on the kindle oh Did although you, you get charged 10 cents i think yeah and i don't think pdfs transfer very well um say word I've, documents so I, yeah, maybe they don't want to send pdfs you have yeah. to mobilize them Anyway, exactly. You, exactly. We'll have our. I I I subscribed to a couple of newspapers, uh, Salon, which I uh, am a premium subscriber to anyway. Um, just because that would be nice to be able to consume that content. I think the wireless is the key. I may use this. I may use the Sony for books and use this for ephemera for content. Well, I am again the idea of of wireless where you subscribe to blogs or newspapers or something and it just all is in there right. i think that's very cool and the fact that you have you know that they, they did it right from a hardware standpoint they're over on 
Sprint's network with EVDO, which is you know much better bandwidth than unfortunately the iPhone, which is over an, with uh, AT and T and the right. Edge network, which oh. does not have the the um, the the bandwidth performance. Although that these EVDO files aren't is. that big. True. There, in fact, that's absolutely the case. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. But anyway, they they did a deal with Sprint, and the Sprint, and there's no extra charge for that, which I find interesting. I, it's, I guess it's built into everything you buy because everything you buy is copy protected and costs something. Yeah. Well, I I also bought the same book both for the Sony five hundred five ah. and for the Kindle, so that I'm able I'll be able to do a some side by side comparison of of how the books look. You are dedicated. So yeah, well, I just love I love the e ink format. I love I've been an e book user forever. Yeah, I mean, we're early adopters on this. I mean, I know most people. Somebody told me. I think Scott Bourne told me that the Sony e book readers only sold in the tens of thousands of units. It's not a huge seller. Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised. No, it's a specialty. Yeah, uh, and I wonder if Amazon. I mean, it got it's gotten so much attention for the Kindle. I wonder if it'll break through. I have a feeling it will not. It's the kind of thing I think is going to be gathering dust on a lot of people's shelves. But you and I both do use these ebook readers, so if yeah. if it works for us, anyway, we'll have a review next week. At least, yeah, cool. at least you will. Mine might not be here yet. I'll wait for you, Leo. No, <laughs> I don't mind. Uh, GRC.com is also the home of Spinrite, everybody's favorite. Hard drive recovery and maintenance utility it is a must-have. If you've got hard drives, you need Spinrite. GRC.com. Steve, have a great week. We'll be back next week. Who knows what we're going to be talking about? It's a mystery. Do you know? To me, too. I, I have it. I have it. I have a list here of topics we'll be getting to very soon. Okay. So uh, I'll choose one. We'll choose one. Maybe it'll be the Kindle. Who knows? Uh, we could talk about the DRM they're using. That, that might be an interesting security issue. And also, how soon before I start getting spam at my Kindle address? Oh, yes. How soon before the Kindles get hacked? <laughs> That'll be interesting. Thank you, Steve. We'll talk again next week. Security now.